lawyers at you know six hundred dollars an hour a piece are fighting over milkshake machine equipment that doesn't exist everybody took a step back and said okay wait a second I think if people really understood like the behind the scenes of what we have to do on the investing side, I think people probably perceive it to be like, oh, you just kind of hang out and sling some checks or something. It's super cool. And it's like, mm, well. And so being able to sit across the table from someone and convince them that they're, they're not giving up their baby. Hey guys, welcome back to the Results Junkies podcast. Paul and I put together another ambitious list to talk through. I, I doubt we'll cover it all this week, but we've got Uber Eats and DoorDash on there, trip actions, changing tactics during the pandemic um, to massive success, what you should really be thinking about if you're deciding whether to buy it or build it when it comes to growth. Um, you know, there's that whole Aussie media mess, but I think we should start with an update on your Chrome plugin, Paul, because I, I, you, you, get, you shared some news with me offline. Um, you know, what's the progress on Northstar? All right. So, yeah, let, let me just do a quick refresher on that. So, uh, you know, I st- a couple uh, well, a while ago, probably a year ago, started messing around with a Google extension uh, that sort of all it did was opened up a new every time I knew, opened up a new tab, it would just show me my. Uh, the most important uh, e-commerce metrics uh, for my Google Analytics account. And honestly, it was just sort of a way to keep me from just getting distracted and scrolling through social media or something like that. And and anyway, long story, long story short, uh, somebody saw it eventually uh, over my shoulder on a laptop one day. I was like, hey, I'd like that. And so finally, I kind of like started kicking off the rust and pulling out the uh, you know, text made and starting to code again. And so anyway... Um, got the extension published, or I'm sorry, submitted to Google, learned a lot along the way. Uh, you know, uh, one of the many things learned was uh, Google, you know, multi-billion, if not trillion dollar valued company has the worst support documentation. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was just, you know, a lot of it was trial and error. But anyway, it's, uh, yeah, version uh, 0.1 and 0.2 are now working. Uh, What's pretty cool is that uh, a bunch of other people are now using it. I tweeted about it, I think, uh, just earlier this week to see if people wanted to, uh, to test it out, you know, while it's still waiting for full approval from uh, Google and stuff like that. But yeah, so people are using it. I can see some of the stats now, which is really fascinating. But man, man, like I'm learning. I'm learning. <laughs> the It's actually kind of fun to, to, to kind of kick off the or uh, kick off the dust or the rust on the coding side. So it's been good. Yeah, I would, not, I would not be as far along as you. It's been a long time since I've actually sat down and coded, but you, you talk about the the Google side of things and, uh, I, you know, I mean, it, it, it amazes me. And we talked a bit about this, you know, weeks ago offline when we were launching the podcast where, um, you know, I've launched a handful of podcasts. So I have, you know, a reasonable amount of experience with the Apple platform, but they made some changes recently and, and I'm setting up the podcast and all I'm getting is this like big generic message on a white screen that just says, you know, there was an error in your request. And, you know, just continuing to Google, you know, hour after hour, page after page, trying to figure out what the error was with people having posted, well, try this and try that. You know, no support documentary from Apple whatsoever. Yeah, wasn't that? Yeah, that was the Apple. Okay, so you kind of have to set that up because that, that was actually really funny. So when you were setting up the podcast and I think you were submitting it, uh, uh, what was hilarious was, well, it was probably hilarious because I didn't have to deal with it. But anyway, <laughs> you know, here's Apple, trillion dollar company, whatever. 
and you submit this thing, you press the big button, it's supposed to work. And what you end up with is a white page that says something went wrong. You know, yeah. on Apple's site, it literally just, it's a white page, something went wrong. And I think yeah. that was the funny part of the whole thing was that tr trillion dollar valuation or whatever, or market cap, and they couldn't have like a designer spend an hour. <laughs> Even 15 minutes. It was, yeah, it, it was just, it just a blank page or something went wrong, which might actually be our show title this week. Um, but, uh, but it's like, it, you know, yeah, as you say, and they just launched this huge, um, innovation for them in, in podcasting in terms of, you know, folks being able to charge for podcasts and monetize them in the Apple store, sort of like a Patreon's, uh, you know, tucked into Apple podcast, like all these great things. And, mm -hmm. and it's been a couple months. So in theory, obviously the bug should be worked out, but the whole process, just the rails, the wheels just sort of came off the, the, the car on that one. Yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, it's good. But I, I think like, you know, the, the me sort of like getting getting used to the code again and all that. I, you know, to be honest with you, it's kind of fun because I feel like the the further you get in your career. I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, Ed, but I feel like the further I get in my career, the further removed I am from where I started. You know, I started like twenty years ago writing code and computer science and electrical engineering and doing stuff with my hands, and now. I'm dealing with uh, emotions and business stuff and spreadsheets. And so anyway, it's actually kind of therapeutic to get back to code and, you know, spending 45 minutes on it every night uh, after the kids go down and uh, trying to get as much done as I can before the third bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, the second bourbon would put me under the table, but I can absolutely relate, uh, you know, for the restaurant space. I mean, I... Uh, you know, and all the time I've been in that industry, I always find myself gravitating back towards working with the team periodically. And, you know, for now, right, we are, we're in, in the burger business with five guys, uh, have been for a long time. And, you know, typically when I'm in out in markets visiting our stores, I'll, you know, you know, throw on some gloves and hop on the line and just cook burgers. And yeah, it's not doing anything to move the company forward at that minute. But, uh, you know, as you said, it, it just sort of, you know, lathers up those those muscles and, and it proves I can still still do that stuff but more importantly i think it's great for the team and i think for you being able to you know to put that stuff together and get it submitted um i think it's pretty cool uh th yeah i i assume that there is absolutely no indication as to when they'll approve it uh well so it's it's tricky uh the extension itself is approved the part that is uh ambiguous is the what's called the oauth sign-in so that part, they say, can take four to six weeks, uh, and it's because we're um, getting access to sensitive info. You know, like so. What happens is right. we don't store anything, but uh, when you install the extension, you have to connect it to your Google Analytics account. Um, all that data stays right there on your laptop or your desktop or whatever. It doesn't. Th so the Chrome extension has passed their review now. Uh, you know, they're they're comfortable that the data is not leaving the device and all that, so they're good there. Um, but the part that's taken forever is the um, the sign-in flow. So what happens is if you're if you go and uh, and download it from the Chrome Store right now, you're going to see a lot of scary warnings like this is unverified. Da -da -da, right? <laughs> so uh, that sounds like a sounds like a microcosm into our life. <laughs> you, right. We are unverified. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So anyway, it's fun. It's fun. Um, you know. Also, kind of reminds me like you know how hard I think some of our you know, entrepreneurs that we invest in have it too, you know, you sort of forget sometimes that like, <laughs> well, for all the talk of like, you know, 
fail fast, move quick, you know, deploy often. It's like, well, that does work unless you're dependent on some third-party platform that takes four to six weeks for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and we actually have something sort of hidden on the list that's been there for a few weeks that, that sort of uh, details that, and it goes back to a portfolio company we had uh, a number of years ago. But um, just a, a, a quick stop. We're, you know, call it eight minutes into the episode right now, which means that if you can still hear Paul and I, you probably find us interesting. Um, so do us a quick favor, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening. Um, and if you have 30 seconds, just leave us a, a quick rating and a review uh, to help us grow the show. We appreciate that. But to that point of like learning things, I, you know, I think about, you know, um, I, I flagged this article to you a couple weeks ago about um, how um, in India, they've they've rolled out these new payment rules, um, and where where it affects broadly is in how lots of companies are using things like the Apple App Store and stuff like that in terms of like recurring payments, which, as you and I know, like for a lot of these e-com businesses, is huge. Um, and being able to get that recurring payment traffic is is huge. And and this there's a sort of shift in how they they want to do it from a regulatory standpoint in India. And and I just thought about that when I read it of like how many of our associated companies would be you know, in a really bad spot if Apple just decided to completely change how recurring payments worked or if the government stepped in and said, you're going to need new levels of disclosure. And like, I think back to a company that we had that was in the NFC space going back a number of, of years ago. In fact, I think you even might be a co-investor in that one with me um, where like their big thing was they started with a, a dongle that plugged into the iPhone jack on on the iPhone. And that was an NFC reader for people to use it like concerts and events and stuff like that. And like six months after they did that, Apple decided to get rid of the headphone jack. And it was like, well, now what do we do? Yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, so this this whole, like, you know, the RBI that that that's sort of, you know, running that over there. Um, I, I guess the thing is, though, is that, like, I think here we are in America, and I think we don't realize sometimes how good we have it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, could could Apple change things? Yeah, and actually, I I, I can't cite anything right now, but you know, there uh, wasn't somebody suing Apple a couple of months ago, uh, maybe a year ago, about um, you know in-app payments versus, um, you know, like I think, I, and, I, and I'm speaking above my pay grade here, but like, yeah, no, know, this is the this is the Epic Games lawsuit. That's where, it. That's yep, it. Yeah, yeah, they, yep. and they act, they actually not even did it was a lawsuit, but they actually like. Um, n- intentionally violated Apple's rules to get this to a lawsuit. Yeah, yep. And so I think like, you know, uh, I, I don't, anyway, I think we have a, I don't know how to, like where which side of things I fall on, you know, uh, as a consumer, it's like, you know, I kind of like the idea of, you know, maybe making it slightly harder for me to accidentally sign up for a subscription that I forget about. Um, but on the other hand, as a, you know, an investor and somebody building a business on a recurring basis right now, it's like, well, no, like, you know, I think, uh, I kind of like that you can just sign up and, you know, the customer can just opt in and, and, and stay. So (laughs) I don't know. I, I don't know how to talk to this one. You know, I think that, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens over there though. I think that, um, you know, for better or for worse, it's gonna, if it works, like if, if they do actually make it successfully harder for companies to do recurring payments, but in, in, in the, at the same time, like protect the, the consumer over there, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see that ripple, um, everywhere else, you know, maybe not instantly, but for sure, you'll start to see something else happen, whether it, you know, it starts at the, in the EU or it starts here. 
Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it, it plays out. Yeah. And I think, uh, I, I think I'm you know, frequently on the side of the capitalist in these sorts of things. Cause you know, in terms of how people structure companies, but um, I think the takeaway is if you're, you know, if you're building something again, whether it's you're taking money in from someone or from investors or you're bootstrapping, if you're building a business model that's reliant on any one or multiple single points of failure, like where if that thing breaks, your business is, you know, hampered by double digit percentage. I think it's incumbent on you to think about, um, you know, what, what the solution is for those things, you know, well before the, the dumpster fire happens. And I think, you know, the carcasses of so many companies that never really thought something was going to change, you know, like the black swan event, if you will. And it's like, oh, look, I mean, you know, like our ecosystems have changed significantly over the past 10 years, even in a world of, you know, where we're very, you know, uh, you know, tech enabled now, things change constantly. So that actually kind of takes me a, a tangential half-baked topic that's not on the list, but to, to what you just said there, I think a lot of companies don't think about diversification the right way. Um, and just to kind of like be as, as crisp as I can on this, I think a lot of companies, you know, they start as a product focused company, whether it's like software or hardware or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, rightfully, a lot of companies start as a product centric company and and then it works and they grow. And then what they do is they think, gosh, I should diversify. And so let's say they were selling a green widget. They think, gosh, maybe we should diversify into a uh, sparkly silver widget. And so they diversify. Uh, but what they, what I think they miss is that by doing that, they haven't actually um, protected the business uh, anymore. Because to your point about those black swan events, you know, like if you're, a, for example, a consumer company, doesn't matter how many diversified products you have on the consumer side, if a 2008 happens again, you're likely just as at risk as you were prior to that diversification. Um, you know, when I uh, think about, you know, like what our strategy has been at, at Bump Health, um, what I try to think about or what I try to explain to people is that we're sort of trying to copy the playbooks of, of companies like, you know, uh, um, Cisco and Microsoft and Procter and Gamble. And then what I mean by that is, is like, um, what, if you really kind of look back at those companies' histories and you want to summarize it into maybe a one or two line sentence, which obviously carves out a lot of nuance, I think it would be this. I would say that those large, massive, massive, massive companies started as a product centric company, just like any company does today. But at some point in their history, they decided to become a distribution-centric company. Um, so let me just give you a couple idea, uh, uh, you know, uh, illustrative examples, and then let's see where it goes with this. But let's let's look at Microsoft. So Microsoft, you know, the abridged version of the history is started out as an operating system, uh, you know, got out onto the to the to the desktops and sort of, you know, uh, it, it was a op, it was a a product company at the beginning, makes this operating system. It now it's uh, over the course of the next couple of years, maybe decade. It's 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 got this operating system on millions of computers all over the world, and at some point, I don't know if it was conscious or unconscious, they realized like, gosh, we own the distribution channel now. Like the operating system is the distribution channel. What else can we layer on it? And so then they went out there and built or bought all the components that eventually became Microsoft Office. Well, and then they further innovated past that. And that, as you say, like when we originally had those components, like sometimes, you know, there, there have been periods of time, you know, in the more recent years where you could buy 
those components decentralized, like you could just buy Word or you could just buy Excel. Um, you know, but if you think about the Microsoft Office suite now, it's it's really you know everything is not everything, but it's you know dramatically shifted to O365, which now you don't really buy the newest version of Microsoft Office every year or two years or whenever they come out with it. You pay a monthly fee, and so they've you know pivoted even further into a company that's much more services oriented than product oriented. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. And that's sort of like the the tale of Apple as well. I mean, Apple was all product in the beginning, and you know with Apple Music and uh, Apple Arcade and and a lot you know storage and all this stuff like they still sell lots of hardware but they now have this recurring subscription revenue for things that we rely on. I mean, I, you know I know I can move my pictures from Apple at some point, but right now it's all backed up in the cloud and works great. And I've, you know, thought about moving to Google or someplace else, but I just, you know, when the bill gets bigger from Apple because I hit the next tier, I just sort of like shrug my shoulders and pay it. Right. That's right. And I, I think the takeaway here, or maybe the idea that, that you know, people should uh, consider is that if you're building a company right now and you have some amount of success, you know, like you don't have to wait till you're, you know, $30 million company, but let's just say you're, you've got more than a couple customers. You've got some repeatable sales. Like, you know, let's just say you're in that early stage, but you have repeatable growth and it's, and it's working. Something to think about is, is that, um, as you think about diversifying is what else does that customer possibly want? Um, you know, and, and that, that is a hard question to answer, but I would encourage everybody thinking about this to, or building companies to think about this. You know, uh, one illustrative example is, you know, I think about, you know, where we start, for example, in our company, right? We start by acquiring mom at the point of conception. And we've, we start with this subscription box that, you know, can go all the way to the baby's third birthday. So 45 months of revenue there. Um, but then as we thought about diversifying, we're like, gosh, how do you, how do you hedge? What happens if a 2008 happens again, right? Because consumers would then probably dial back spend. And uh, to, to simplify our thinking as an example that, that maybe listeners can apply to their own businesses, we're like, well, let's white label it. Let's, let's build a corporate version of this because uh, HR departments want to um, uh, uh, support pregnancies or, or encourage staff to tell them about the pregnancies earlier, da, da, da. So, and what we ended up doing was uh, hedging a little bit because now we, when you're selling to companies, it is different, that's for sure. But now you're talking about larger annual contracts uh, right. That are not, so now you've sort of hedged against. So if 2008 happened again, and this is a very simplistic example, it's like, okay, the consumer business might slow down, will likely slow down, but will the corporate side? I don't know, maybe not. Uh, but then we went further and we went to, oh, okay, like let's uh, hedge even further. Let's go into the medical side with durable medical equipment to start first. It's like, well, why would you do that? Well, Let's just say it was really catastrophic. 2008 happens again, super catastrophic. Let's say the consumer side and the corporate side uh, have trouble. Well, now the, the, the reality is that um, insurance is still there. You know, people are still going to have babies. They're still going to need medical care. They're still going to need the equipment that, uh, you know, and all that. So anyway, you know, that's just an illustrative example of like, you know, for, if, for people out there thinking about building businesses is, is to start thinking about diversification a little differently and to start thinking about making a conscious shift at some point from being a product centric startup to a distribution centric business. So I don't know if that makes sense or where, you know, if, if, if uh, you want to peel that back or segue yeah, well, somewhere else here. 
Yeah, I, I, before we move on, I want to. I would argue too. I would take it a step further and say that I think diversification goes um, multiple directions, and I think the pandemic taught a lot of companies this. Um, you know, how many times? I know you and I both frequent Starbucks. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, that's that's where we had our first brainstorming meetings years ago about <laughs> about a product that right. we ne- never actually launched. Um, right. But have right. you noticed how many times Starbucks is out of a key ingredient for your drinks in the past six months? Oh, yeah, you're you're going to the supply chain, aren't you? Yeah, and I think companies like we did all this consolidation and we struck struck all these best deals and like let's let's find the lowest possible price we can find and buy like a ton of stuff from someone. Um, and so then you know all these companies that had supply chains built like that when that one main supplier tipped over COVID outbreak, country regime changes on how to handle COVID, all that stuff, you know, they, they couldn't supply products. So you're like, you're, you know, you, you, you're, you're stuck. And you know, this, this really showed up in Starbucks and it's still showing up. In fact, the last couple of times I've been in Chipotle, they've been like, Hey, we don't have any black beans. It's like, well, I mean, black beans exist, <laughs> you know, that like they're on the grocery store shelves right now. So why doesn't Chipotle have black beans? Well, you know, their their supply chain is fairly narrow for that item to source them the way they want them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they just can't get enough. And so they, they you know, a customer comes in, it's like, well, okay, we don't have rice and we don't have beans today. And you're like, oh, well, I want a burrito. I'm going to go somewhere else. Um, so it taught a lot of companies that lesson of having to understand the the entire landscape to be able to provide that product to your customer and 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 activating channels you might not otherwise activate so you can continue to provide a high quality product to your guest. Yeah, I mean I I, I don't disagree. No I mean you know this stuff. I will say I think you know a lot more about that stuff than I do and I'm I'm still learning. So <laughs> which I think is by the way why we I think work so well together on the investing side is that you know and I, maybe I'm jumping uh, jumping ahead here too fast but you know I I think that you know, given if I was left to my own devices, I, I'm just such an optimist that, you know, I, I sit there looking with an entrepreneur and I'm like, oh, what has to go right for us to, you know, crush it, you know? And and then you come in on the other side and uh, you're not a pessimist. You're more of a realist. And you're like, well, let's look at the 77 ways that, you know, you could make a fatal mistake here. And, and, and the fact <laughs> is we always end up somewhere in the middle. Well, and that's usually, and that's usually when you're telling, uh, you're telling the founders that um, not to listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> which which is which is not which is not too material. But. Yeah. You know, we we put on the list this thing about buy versus build, and and um, you know, I, I want to dig into that, but um, but before we dig into that, I, I want to catch up because I I haven't heard lately. Um, you know, you teased out a few weeks ago that that Bump was working on a, a key acquisition, um, and so. We're a few weeks later in the process. I think it's illustrative <laughs> to people of like where we stand. Oh so yeah, w- where does it stand? Oh, it's still still going. You know, uh, yeah, it's, it's we're probably six or seven weeks into it now, and um, gosh, if it doesn't fall apart in the eleventh hour, it'll get done here probably before Thanksgiving. I mean, the the truth of it is though is that you know, and I and I tweeted something about this a couple, uh, well, I guess a little while ago about this idea that you know ninety percent of uh, any deal is is you know, building the relationship before you even get there. Uh, but then 90% of the stress is like in those last few inches as you get to the final, you know, uh, uh, you know, the closing. Uh, but the, but then like 90% of the upside is really afterwards, you know, and, and, and so it's, it's hard, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, people read about acquisitions all the time. And if you, if you read these things, I mean, I don't know, you think about like just even recently the, the Intuit uh, acquisition of MailChimp, you know, uh, no timeline was ever announced there because it never really is. 
Um, but it sounds like, oh gosh, they got a call on a Tuesday and by Wednesday they announced a $12 billion, you know, acquisition. That's, that's the storyline. I mean, pick any, pick any acquisition and they, you know, the timeline's always left out and it makes it, it sort of implies that it happened fast. The reality yeah. is these things take, in my experience, typically take at least a quarter because, you know, it doesn't matter how fast you think you can move the, the slowest part of these things, to be honest with you, tends to be at the beginning, it's really about the relationship building that takes a lot of time. But then at the end, the thing that like takes the longest and why that last, you know, few inches in the, in the end zone takes so long is because local attorneys, you know, don't know these things or don't see these sorts of deals all the time. So it's not like you're dealing with like big name Silicon Valley sort of, you know, uh, law firms. You're dealing with like, you know, Sally's, you know, individual practice in rural wherever. And she's the corporate attorney for that that part of the country or whatever. And now all of a sudden she's advising the founder that you've been talking to for eight weeks. And she thinks everything you said was unreasonable. <laughs> and so it just slows everything down. Yeah, and I'll say I've dealt with you know big firms and small firms that um you know that 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 struggle with that, and I I've had deals where we thought we were you know pretty close to the finish line, and so we would send a document over to the other attorney, and I remember this happened once in a deal where we sent the document over, and and then they brought in their attorneys afterwards, and the attorney took our document. Um, and literally took every single section and just deleted all of our text and put in their own text um, <laughs> verbatim. And we're like, well, like, what the heck? But I think, you know, tactically, what I think people miss in that moment is, you know, the, the it, it's interesting how the longer the discussions go on, the more you can test the trust in the relationship because, in the beginning, as you say, it's relationship building. And once you like, if you and I are talking about acquisition, we have a relationship and everything feels good because we're talking about things we agree on. Mm -hmm. We're not really talking about the stuff we don't agree on. And then as the, as the, the acquisition talks uh, move forward, two things happen um, in my opinion. The first is, um, you know, everybody gets a little bit more invested in the deal. We all want to see it close because we put in time and energy to get it there. So that's one thing at the exact same time other people are likely introducing doubt into the process, i.e. lawyers. So you you now start to have potential trust issues. And I think the, the that moment there where, you know, where the stress is building near the close of a deal, if you can sit there and, and think and look level-headed, and going back to one of the things that you said in a previous episode, Paul, about um, you know, the three invisible rules, about understanding... Mm -hmm and addressing the hopes, fears, and dreams of the person across the table. I think fears really keys in here. You've already discussed hopes and dreams if you're doing an acquisition. It's like, hey, if we do this together, we can be super big, or yep. hey, we're going to pay you a lot of money for that company you built, you know, whatever it is. Like, we've already covered hopes and dreams. Yep. This is when we cover fears. And so being able to sit across the table from someone and convince them that, um, you know, that, that they're, they're not giving up their baby or that you're not going to screw them on this one deal term, all those things. It's, it's the, it's one of the hardest times I think to put yourself in the shoes of the person across the table, but it's also one of the most important because the only way you're going to push that deal across the table is if at some point, in my opinion, they're willing to override their lawyer on uh, something yes. where, where the lawyer's Thank like, you. well, no, you know, you know, I, I you know, I, I remember funny story. We were selling some five guys stores a long time ago. Um, we actually, the lawyers were getting so bad about some stuff. We actually inserted some language about selling milkshake machines as part of the deal. 
Um, but five guys didn't even serve milkshakes at that point. And the illustrative <laughs> point was that the lawyers had no idea what the actual businesses were. They were just arguing over stuff because that was what they were paid to do. <laughs> and then right. we brought up to the principals like, hey, like they're the, the lawyers at, you know, $600 an hour a piece are fighting over a milkshake machine equipment that doesn't exist. Everybody took a step back and said, okay, wait a second. Like, like we need to figure out what the actual disagreements are. Well, you know, and that, that is, you know, for people listening to this, the, the key advice you should probably always keep in the back of your mind is that you should treat your attorney as a referee, not a coach. Yes. And I think that people don't think about it that way. They, they think, oh, let me just pass this over to the attorney and see what they think. That's what they'll say, which uh, uh, on its face sounds right. Uh, except that to your point, that attorney is going to do exactly what you just said. They're going to, if you don't give them any context, they're just going to look at that and say, nope, nope, nope. Don't like that. Don't like that. Don't like that. They don't have any of the context. They don't have any of the understanding they're, but they're doing their job, which is okay. Uh, but this is where founders and you know people in general just need to make sure they understand that like, you've got to treat the attorney like a referee. Um, so uh, without giving too many details on this particular deal, I'll give you an example. Um, here we are, you know, trying to get this deal over the finish line. All the business terms have already been done and discussed and, you know, all that. And here comes this attorney at the last minute now saying, gosh, I don't like this one term because it, you know, I've never seen it before, uh, it, you know, from with, with the small town experience and all that stuff. But also, uh, here's the 77 reasons why it's terrible and what that, and, and that attorney means, well, I know that they do, but, but like what she's missing in that scenario and what I'm dealing with right now is she misses the reason why we're asking for it at all. You know, we we're looking for equal protections on both sides and, you know, we conceded quite a bit on a couple things and we were asking for at least an equal amount of, you know, concession on the other side, uh, nothing that was out of line. And anyway, the point is, though, is that I think people really should be thinking about their attorneys as referees and not coaches. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there, but we can definitely like dig into it. But yeah, I, oh, one other thing, I'll, by the way, I'll just say, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but as an example, at one point, the other side's attorney came in and was like, hey, we need to see changes on X, Y, and Z. I mean, I, it just was like very fact of the matter. I would like to see these changes. And I looked at the what what they were requesting and I... I had to read it and I, it was like, I saw what the flaw in her argument was within about two minutes, but because she was so sure about it, I doubted myself. And I just sat there rereading that section of the, of the paperwork for literally an hour. I, was just, I mean, I was just like, what am I not seeing? And finally I just sent an email back and I was like, Hey, I can make that change if you like, but I don't know why you would want that because so, so just as a show of good faith in this particular deal, what I said was, Hey, if we break off for whatever reason, if you walk away, if I walk away, if anything happens, listen, uh, as the buyer, we'll go ahead and destroy everything we've ever seen of yours and we'll provide proof and da, 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 but you are not under the same obligation. Like that's how much good faith that we want to show here is that like, we will protect you and your information, but we don't expect the same back. Well, she wanted it two-sided and like, I don't understand why you would want that. Like, it almost seemed like she hadn't read it, to be honest. And so that's when I ended up calling the entrepreneur and like, and to your point, this is like your, this is like the equivalent of your milkshake thing, right? It's like, guys, this thing, this is, what are they arguing about again? 
Because it kind of feels like they're arguing about, uh, they're arguing just to drive up the billable hours. (laughs) Well, and I think that's that's a really important point. You need to remember in those discussions, this isn't to say that lawyers are bad. I mean, I have strong opinions about them. Correct. Yeah, you didn't need them. Even when lawyers are helpful, the, the lawyer almost never gets paid based on the deal getting consummated. They get paid for protecting their client. Correct. That's what they're there for. And so whenever we talk about the motives for people that we're in business with, I think f- people frequently overlook what the lawyer's motive is. Like the lawyer's there to protect you, not, they don't get a bonus when the deal closes. I mean, very rare cases maybe, but the reality is, is that they're getting paid to protect you. And at some point you may need to look up and say, I don't need any more protection on this point. And that's mm-hmm. a business decision that you make and you assume the risk of doing something against what your lawyer says. I'm not saying you should go against what your lawyer says, but at some point you're going you're likely to have a disagreement with your lawyer where you you're, you're not going to be able to resolve it and then it's up to you as a business person to make a decision that you're willing to accept whatever risk the lawyer has said is left. That's right. That's right. You know, when you think about why you would even buy something it's typically because it'd be faster, obviously, to to just do that, right? Than to build it from your on your own. And the what comes well, I along, that, well, I think there's two reasons. Okay. I, I think that, I think it's one of them. I think the other one is because you feel like you're taking a, a strategic competitor out of a space. So I think I think those are the two big reasons why I hear discussion on buying. It's because you want to get there faster, or because you want to consolidate an advantage in the market. That's fair. Yep, absolutely. And so, but what comes with um, that? typically is you do need the team to come with it, right? I mean, you're not, you're not, you know, you, typically the asset, whatever the asset is, isn't going to just run itself. Um, somebody still has to come along with it. Uh, now, maybe your experience is different, you know, with, with, with the restaurant businesses and stuff like that. But when we're talking about like these tech companies, somebody's got to know how to push the buttons a certain way and we need that experience. So this is, this is why like the relationship side is so important and why, you know, like, you know, uh, you've got to understand that like the um, if you're going to buy it and if you need that team to come with it, you really do have to invest in the relationship. You have to really um, actively manage all the attorneys on both sides and, and make sure that, you know, <laughs> well-meaning people that are billing by the hour are, aren't driving the conversation, you know, because most of the upside in, in, in a lot of these deals is going to be after, you know? And so, um, but yeah, anyway, that, that's an interesting segue into that build versus buy thing. And I, I, I hadn't considered what you were just saying there in terms of, you know, I, I think of it as like buying to be able to enter a specific market faster yeah, uh, or grow within a specific market faster. Um, but I see your point that maybe you want to take out a strategic competitor. Uh, we, you know, at least for me, I've never really thought about that, uh, mostly because like culture is so important. You know, when before I went into like, when I think about acquisitions, I rarely ever do anything on the top end of the market, typically because the culture of a large company and, uh, and merging it into like whatever you've currently got is just really hard. Um, so I'm typically coming in the other way and saying, gosh, who are the people that are early enough to not have learned a lot of bad habits and need 17 assistants for, you know, the CEO or whatever? Um, and how do I, you know, how do I acquire them? So... Well, and I think you bring up a really good point earlier about, um, you know, when, when you think about the landscape of these things that you need the team to operate the machine. And, and that's where I think culture plays such a huge role. It doesn't, 
in my opinion, it doesn't matter whether your culture is better or worse than your acquisition target. It matters that you can find a way to mesh them because Mm -hmm. if you're buying a team of two or 200, uh, like you said, we don't, we don't look at big acquisitions for companies that are in our portfolio and, and, and even in the brick and mortar space, I think, you know, once you get past some functional number, let's call it 2000, um, you know, the, the ability to integrate culture becomes much more difficult. And so then you're trying to, you know, you're trying to weigh that, that value. And, and quite frankly, I think the vast majority of situations I've been in, the, the thing that makes the company go isn't one person. It might seem like it, you know, like we think of, you know, Travis Kalanick is the reason Uber went, but I mean, you know, one guy doesn't make a company that big, but, but he sets a tone and he sets a culture and, and many founders do. And so you have to think about, you know, how much of that culture do you need to accomplish what you want? And, and, and that, and that I think is a big part of, of the buy versus build equation, uh, mm-hmm. you know, evaluating, you know, if you, if you, even if you think it's the right decision to, to buy, it's, you know, Hey, how successful do I think I can be at meshing the two cultures? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Ask me again in eight weeks. Uh, if you get this thing <laughs> over the finish line, you know, how do you, how do you get the cultures to align? Well, that'll be the next thing to deal with. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think this, this whole build versus buy thing, you know, I hope uh, as people are listening to this, uh, you know, depending on which side of the table you're on, I think for the entrepreneurs being acquirable is more than just the business itself too. I mean, I think uh, there's a likability, uh, there's got, there's a, there's a lot of other factors that have to, that will make you acquirable, whether you're funded or not, whether you're early or late, like it's, it's more than just the business terms. You know, we, like I, before I got to this particular uh, deal, I, I flew around uh, looking at a couple other larger ones and, you know, great economics, great businesses, great, you know, whatever. But then just the people weren't good. Like they, they were, I'm sure they were great people. I shouldn't say that, but like they're pro- they wouldn't mesh with our culture and some of them, you know, uh, just uh, there were just little things where it's like, man, that's not, that's not what I want inside our four walls. <laughs> well, yeah, you guys have spent a long time focusing on culture. So again, you've put in that work, you've gotten to this point and, and it's, it's important to do the work. I mean, we had an example in our portfolio and I'm going to anonymize this a bit because it's, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't know that it's something I can talk about publicly, but you know, typically in these sorts of things, when you have acquisitions, like, you know, there's some level of uh, protection or acceleration of equity for, you know, your C-level executives, if you will, CEO, mm-hmm. CFO, that CMO, that's that sort of stuff. Um, and I, we had one recently where there was somebody who was just like one notch below that. And there wasn't really any key discussions about that person, but that person was really integral into making the engine go. And they got the acquisition done and then realized that that person wasn't going to be happy. And it was mm-hmm. like, oh, like we're done. And now we're looking in the rearview mirror going, Oops, we missed that. And mm-hmm. um, it's incumbent on both parties because in this one, I think the the acquirer and the acquisition target could have done more to manage that. It's not just on the acquirer to understand all the bits and pieces. As the acquisition target, you know, like you want you want your acquirer to think they got a good deal because you you're in theory, unless you're like a hundred percent committed to going out the door, you at least want to keep open the option of like, hey, maybe I want to stay and be a part of this bigger thing for forever and ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd say, you know, looping back on like the, the the building blocks of buy versus build, when you talk about like reasons to do it, I think one of the things that why, why there probably aren't more acquisitions is because I think that confident 
talented entrepreneurs will look down at times and say, I've seen what they have done and I can build that. And, you know, in a lot of cases, they're right. They can build it, but I don't think they hit the fast forward button. And so you say, well, all right, yes, I can build it. But if that company is really well built and you were attracted enough to them to think about wanting to buy them, how much further longer are they going to be while you're building what they've already built? And so they don't think about what that horizon looks like the next six months or nine months or 18 months. And it's like, all right, well, how long does it take to catch up to them? And then once you catch up to them, how much further have they run ahead of you? That's right. It's the time. It's the time, uh, the, the, the time part that people, you know, don't, don't know how to value sometimes, you know, and that's, that's the, the tricky part. But yeah, I mean, look, I wish there was a way, I, you know, and I realize all these deals have to stay private and I, I get that and I get why they happen. But, uh, but you know, gosh, I, I hope someday somebody figures out how to, you know, like really get people to talk about the underlying. Like, I wish there was a way to do like a, you know, uh, ask me anything that's somehow anonymized, but somebody verifies that the person asking, the, answering the questions was was like integral to like, you know, key acquisitions and then just start to like build a content series around that because man th like i don't know how you feel about this uh ed but like I, I think if people really understood like the behind the scenes of what we have to do on the investing side i think people probably perceive it to be like oh you just kind of hang out and sling some checks or something it's super cool and it's like well <laughs> no <laughs> no it's it's a way more complicated and uh the deal terms are really just one part of a much larger set of things that we have to think about and talk about with with the founders and the team and all that stuff. So anyway, I, I hope somebody, if somebody's listening to this, like somebody curate like a anonymized Ask Me Anything series on Reddit or something like that. I think it'd be fascinating to get people to really see how how certain deals really, really happen. Because I think there is a public story, there's a private story, and then there's the real story. And that's the one that nobody really talks about. Yep, I agree completely. I think that's probably a wrap on this week. But I, I, you know, as a placeholder, I'd say you know we talked offline about wanting to get one of the founders uh, in your portfolio on to talk about these sorts of pivots that happened in the pandemic and happened back in two thousand eight, and companies that were you know truly successful at doing that. Um, so hopefully, we will be able to get her to come on and talk um, yep. live bullets, names, you know, all that kind of stuff to give people an idea of uh, you know what it what it takes to, to sort of think about not only the buy versus build mentality, but what things are going to look like when you hit the fast forward button. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, I will uh, reach out to her and uh, she will, I'm 99% I'm sure she'll be excited to, to join us. It's going to be great. Could be the first guest on the Results Junkies podcast. Yeah. I, I think actually on that note though, if you're still with us, you know, if there's somebody that you want us to get on the show, um, just email us show at resultsjunkies.com or, uh, DM either one of us on, on any of the social platforms and, uh, we'll see what we can do. But I, yeah, I think it'd be cool to get like operators on here and, and get them talking about the real stuff, uh, uh, somehow. So we'll get Agreed it. Agree completely. And, uh, those, uh, those handles, he is at Paul Singh, and I am at Pizza in Motion. All right, man, you traveling this week? No travel in the short term here. I'm going to spend the next 10 days or so wrangling these attorneys. Uh, and then with a little bit of luck, you know, go go uh, find a beach somewhere with Dana for a, a week and uh, leave the kids with the grandparents and, uh, you know, kind of re recharge after uh, using all my words. Um, <laughs> with the <laughs> 
<laughs> with both sides attorneys. I like it. Well, I can't wait to see the acquisition get across the finish line and have some more conversations about it on the show. Uh, but until we upload again, guys, we will talk to you soon. Yeah, have a great week.